We're finally back and just in the nick of time. Did you notice that some of the most consequential decisions of our year came to a head this week from our stadiums to our schools? We look at what happened, why, and what now. Week in Review is made possible through the generous support of AARP Kansas City, RSM, Dave and Jamie Cummings, Bob and Marlise Gorley, the Courtney S. Turner Charitable Trust, John H. Mize and Bank of America N.A. co-trustees, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Hello, I'm Nick Haynes, and we are thrilled to bits to be back with you. And we've got so much to talk about, from picking the new police chief to the stadiums to four-day school weeks. We could fill an hour, but in half the time, we're going to bring you twice the insight, thanks to Kevin Collison, who's been tracking the downtown ballpark plan for City Scene KC. Keeping track of all these stories from behind a microphone at KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo is with us, always on call from the Kansas City Call newspaper, Eric Wesson, and from our own digital newsroom, Flatland KC, Mary Sanchez. Let's start with the most costly item on our to-do list, the new $2 billion home for the Kansas City Royals. It's been nearly a month now since Royals owner John Sherman announced plans to leave Kauffman Stadium and build this $2 billion ballpark village downtown. While many of us have been scratching our heads, finally this week he took the stage at Plex Pond in Westport to reveal more details about what he has in mind and to hear what the public has to say about his ambitious plan. Why does a perpetual last place team deserve a new $2 billion stadium? If you won't invest in the team, why should we invest in you? This is a public-private partnership, and our ownership group is gonna be a subs the substantial investor in this project. Now, this was a two-hour event. What, if anything, did we learn that was new, Kevin? Well, we got a better idea about how this ballpark district breaks down. About half that $2 billion is for the stadium itself. The other billion dollars would be for the redevelopment around it. Uh, we had the confirmation that the private side of it would be financed by uh, the private sector, the redevelopment area, and that a significant amount of money would go up from the private side into the ballpark, although we did get confirmation as well that they ex hope and expect the Jackson County voters to continue the 3.8 cent sales tax that's currently being used to help uh, refurbish and pay the bonds off at the Truman Complex. So we got a better idea about the financial aspect. But I was expecting, Peter, you know, where, where is this going to be built? Uh, how are we exactly going to spend it? What is the timeline for doing that? We didn't get any of that. No, we got 17 locations downtown, though, to pick from, possibly. Uh, you know, this is one of those things where, uh, Kevin's right, they brought up, we're going to fund this thing privately or private capital on the ballpark village side. And then he says a major part of the stadium. Not majority, but major. What is major? $200 million is a lot. That's major, but it's 20% of the total cost of the ballpark. And I'm thinking to myself, too, if you got the billion dollars for capital for the village, why are you investing it in the village? and not the ballpark. And that's where my wheels start spinning and thinking, okay, that's an investment to turn a profit off of quickly and maybe sell off. The stadium's not. So that's where the 
taxpayer comes in, the question is how much, and those answers we still don't have. There was another aspect that we also learned about this, Eric Wesson, this week. They said it was going to cost them just as much a billion dollars to stay at Arrowhead Stadium, and we learned a brand new term that we hadn't heard before, and that was cancer of the concrete. Do you remember this? <laughs> yeah. That they said that they would have to tear it all out. There's a, such a problem with the concrete. Did you buy into all of that, that it would cost that much to go there and, and, and renovate the stadium as it is? Well, the cost of concrete is expensive, so I could see that. And they do need a lot of things that that need to be done there at the stadium. When you go behind the scenes and you look in the, the dugout areas and all of those areas, there is a lot of work that needs to be done. Whether it would be that much money, I don't know because I don't know what renovations they would like to see. But it, it does need some attention. Before the event itself, Casey Tennant said, we're going to be opposing this plan. They came there, too, to listen in. They said this is going to displace, quote, black and brown people, Mary. And to add insult to injury, they will end up, we'll be ending up paying for it. Did Sherman uh, in any way address any of those issues? He did in the fact that he listened. And I think that is the one uh, maybe a takeaway of a lot of the topics that we're going to talk about today. That was a session that was billed as, at least so far, the first of a listening. Absolutely right to Pete's point. We do not have the answers that really matter um, at the end of the day on a lot of this. But I think he did listen to them. I don't know if they really fully felt heard. There is so much redevelopment the, the, occurring. You, know, you say too. about but listening to it, but but, yeah. but Pete, there was you know these were all. They took about eight to ten questions. Mm -hmm. You had to give the questions in advance. This yeah. wasn't this uh, spontaneous citizen engagement experience, was it? They were. He saw these questions in advance. Well, it's like the old, you know, you walk into an event, you put your question in the box, and then magically the 10 questions you know are going to be the ones that get asked. I mean, it felt very scripted. That's, that's the word I'll use. If I have 30 seconds of advice for John Sherman, you got overpaid consultants on the PR side who are telling you what to do. He's a humble um, easy to like, easy to get to know guy. He's a man of Kansas City. Strip it all down. Go to listening sessions in the community yes. at a grassroots level. The PR people are going to try to finagle and script this thing. They're going to overdo it. And Absolutely. I don't think this first one came off well for him. And he's an easy guy to like if he just bees himself. One of the big concerns that people have <laughs> in the public is the parking issue. And one of the, I, I thought was one of the interesting things that came up was they said there are two and a half times as many parking spots downtown than at the Truman Sports Complex. Really, Ken? Uh, well, I mean, there are surveys that have found there are 55,000 available parking spaces in and around greater downtown. Now, that's a pretty big geography. That's not just the central business district. That's uh, the River Market. That's the crossroads. That's probably the Crown Center area. So they're not, I mean, I have no doubt that there are a lot of parking spaces available downtown. One of the big issues is just showing people how to get to them. I mean, they may be there, but it may be hard to find. But I want to get back to a couple of things that have come up with some of the other panelists here. Um, you know, I do think that the event on uh, Tuesday went well. I think they had a system where they asked people to write their questions out in advance. They sorted through them. They avoided some of the uh, histrionics that often occur at these hearings where people go on for like five minutes with a question that never reaches an answer. They covered a lot of material. They definitely said we want to focus on affordable housing in this development. And also, uh, you know, Casey Tenants kind of has a tendency to jump the gun on things. They don't know where this is going to go, so how would they know who's going to be displaced? From every source I've talked to, they're talking primarily about the East Village, which is an eight-block area of vacant parking lots on the east side of downtown near City Hall. 
nobody but a couple of rats and a few pigeons are going to be displaced if they put it there. So we need to be a little bit more restrained in some of this knee-jerk reaction we're hearing in the community. And I do think Sherman, you know, is a very sincere person when he's talking about how this is going to be financed. They're not in there to try to sell out anything. It's going to be redeveloped uh, through some of the standard processes we see in the city. And they're going to ask the taxpayers to pay roughly 40% of what the stadium would cost because that's what the 3.8 cents sales tax would raise for it. Will it, though, be such a simple proposition as that? Because we haven't heard from the chiefs at this point in time. And w w won't it be when it goes on the ballot, will there be that, that if we build a downtown ballpark, if you support that, you're also supporting a rolling roof, for instance, at Arrowhead Stadium so we can bring a Super Bowl to the community? Is it going to be a combo tax plan? It would have to be uh, in order to get a buy-in from people in Kansas City and the Jackson County area. But I did want to go back to something that Pete said about doing the, the building outside for the billion dollars and then the stadium as the second. The building outside would generate tax revenue, so that might be in, easier for the state to feed into because I was watching some of the uh, comments from elected officials, and it is they don't know how much money that they're going to be asking. But if they're generating a tax base, then the state would probably have to go along with it. Something else that has been said religiously on this program by our good friend Dave Helling is that, oh, they're going to go to the voters in April. Well, that was something that was stated very clearly, and they're, they're not going to do that, yeah, Pete. Right. They're going to go in August, or and that would be the earliest the they earliest. could go. Yes. Yeah, the earliest would be August. Uh, they want no part of this being involved with the mayor's race, nor should they. Uh, I mean, you know, it's interesting. See, we're all sitting here speculating. There's a very easy way to stop the speculation. You know, give us three locations you really want to look at. Tell us what your number is for the stadium. And then we don't have, whether it's us or other groups, jumping the gun on, on assumptions. But you can't start a listening tour without the biggest answers that the taxpayer has. And the taxpayer deserves these answers. Pete, uh, John Sherman did say this was a listening tour. This was right. the first stop in that. So we will have yeah. more events. Yeah. And they've established a website that people can go to to learn where uh, additional events are going to be. And, you know, if you take a look at the crowd reaction, uh, there was no booing, no hissing. Uh, there, it, it, I thought it was a good event. You know, uh, Pete and I might disagree on that. We do know now approximately what the ballpark would cost. We don't know the location. Uh, but, you know, it certainly was a good first step in my mind. Well, after months of debate, meetings, angry protests and pointed words, Kansas City finally got a new police chief this week. Stacey Graves will become the first woman to permanently lead the KCPD. Why do you think you're better suited for this job as compared to the other candidates? I'm committed to the betterment and safety of this city. Um, I have spent over 25 years with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department readying me for this position. Clearly not everyone is happy with the choice, but does the historic nature of her appointment as the first permanent woman chief silence at least some of the criticism from groups that claim only an outsider can turn this police department around, Eric? Well, the Board of Police Commissioners gets to check that box, but I don't think anything was solved by her appointment today because, honestly, I was there, I listened to all three other candidates. She was the worst. 
as far as why a was she leader, the worst? She didn't show the leadership or experience that was needed. We got 166 homicides. Why did you think then that the board not just voted for her, but unanimously <laughs> voted for her, which was not the case when Rick Smith became the police chief? I remember Sly James voting against him, right. and the Mayor, Mayor Lucas voted for this. Yeah, and that is something that is beyond because I wasn't there behind the scene because they went into a closed session. But again, it's a situation where in the urban core it's like, okay, we got another Northland chief of police, so that means that the issues that are taking place in the black community will be overlooked again. You spoke to the mayor this morning about this. Yes. Um, I thought he was between two, Deshaun Buford out of Philadelphia and uh, Stacy Graves. He kind of alluded to that. Wasn't sure it was going to be unanimous, but clearly it was. Um, you know, I don't think it shouldn't matter what her gender is, who she sleeps with, or what her skin color is. Is she the best person for the job? I mean, that's really all that should matter here. I don't think the historic nature of it should even be part of the conversation. But I will say this. Rick Smith's not a Northland guy. He's not from the yes. Northland. South. He he's, south, he's south of the river. He is? Yeah. yeah. Oh, most people thought Saint that he Thomas lived North up Harris. north. Why up is that? North. Why would that be? I have absolutely you no idea. I, really? Well, yeah. uh, okay. The assumption was the lack of connection to the urban core, uh, which, which he very much had that. Well, let, let's ask this then. <laughs> well, there what, what, what would be the biggest difference between Stacey Graves in the position as police chief than what we saw when Rick Smith was the head of the Kansas City Police Department? Well, I think she actually did get into it with him behind the scenes, um, as a number of people did. And her... She, she came up under Forte. She was his aide, and he was there at the event as well. Here's someone who came up through, what, the records department? She knows the civilian side. I think they like her. She also has worked, what, in Vice as a detective. She worked, you know, with us, the media. She did a lot mm -hmm. of different roles. She so also what, saw what went off the rails. But a lot of people in Kansas City didn't want somebody who was inside the department. They didn't, was this a mistake? But you know what? That's what we have. I'm not going to say it was okay. a mistake. I guess if you took a survey, you probably couldn't find 15 people in the black community that knows who she is outside of her being on the commercials or making sound bites when there were homicides. But one of the things that was going unsaid is she's mentioned in this 380 page document about the corruption and the yeah. things that are going on in the police department. So if she was all of this about change, why have we never seen her step up to the mic and say, hey, we got some stuff going on here in the police department. She's never done that. And I think that'll lead toward people not having confidence in her ability to bring about change. Mayor Lucas was on Pete's show this morning and he said this, quote, the new police chief should drive to the most dangerous neighborhood in Kansas city and find the biggest venue and say, hey, I'm here to listen. How would that go down? It probably wouldn't go down well at first because people still have to buy into the fact that you're honest about what you're saying that you're going to yeah. do. I think you say one thing and do another. People pay attention to that. When Monday morning rolls around, how would you feel if you could just turn off the alarm clock and stay in bed? Well, that luxury is now on the way for thousands of students and hundreds of teachers in the Independent School District. The Independent School Board just voting to implement a four-day school week starting next fall. Forcing people to pay more money for childcare in this economy is reckless at best. I think this is a chance to retain our very best and entice people to come to the Independent School District. So, Mary, is the idea here then that teachers, given a choice, would pick a place to work, not on how much they, the district pays them, but where they can get a three-day weekend and stay in bed on a Monday morning? I don't know that any teacher um, who is a good teacher is just planning on staying in bed. 
The problem is those salaries. I mean, Missouri is one of the lowest paying states in the nation. That is your baseline problem. I'm up in the air on whether it's actually going to help anything. A lot of parents, though, also concerned what we're going to do for childcare during Absolutely. that day when the kids yeah. are not at school. But they're going to offer that for $30 right. a day on a Monday for that to happen. They're going to offer enrichment programs. Does that solve the issue? No, because as a parent, that's a hundred. Twenty extra dollars a month that you have to now figure into your budget based upon something that you had no say so in. So I think if they're doing it and they're sincere about wanting to do it, they should offer that to the parents for free. But what does this tell us, Kevin, about the situation in the workplace today that a school district feels they have to offer this kind of benefit to be able to even get people to come into work? Well, you know, from what Mary was pointing out, the teacher salaries are terrible. If one of the major reasons the board is doing this is to attract more people because that schedule might be more appealing to them. That is certainly an indication that, you know, they're trying to be creative coming up with ways to get talented people to go there. If they can't get them with salaries, then we'll give them that four-day week. Uh, I agree, though, that uh, if they're going to provide that child care opportunity on Mondays, I mean, these people are all paying taxes, big taxes, Absolutely. for the school yeah. district. It should be part of the package. They don't have to have teachers there, but I think it's kind of wrong to expect people to not only pay their school taxes, but then have to pay an extra sum to have daycare uh, on Monday so they can go to work. But it definitely shows, as you point out, it's a new way, from what I can tell, to try to get talent to come in there, uh, especially when they're competing with Johnson County, which I'm sure has a significantly Absolutely. better salary. But what would happen, though, I mean, so if other school districts start doing this, I mean, will you then see independents say, well, we need to go to three days now because all these other districts have gone to four, and that will give us our competitive edge? I think two sounds pretty good, Nick, so I think two is the <laughs> oh, sweet yeah. spot. I mean, it's a race to the bottom, right? That's what this is. It's a race to the bottom. You go to four. People are going to start matching you at four. What's next? How far does it keep going well, down? It's so it's mandated. A, There's a number of yes. hours that you oh, have to Of course, of course. And they are extending the school day, but about yeah, 40 minutes every day. Yes. Hour school but day. there's no documentation or proof that going to a four-day work week includes your uh, employment pool. There's no documentation for that. So this is just a hunch, and I agree they need to pay the teachers more. More, more than 100 school districts in Missouri, mostly rural and smaller, have already done this, and apparently, according to state education statistics, only one has backed out of it. But it's in the it rural community, you know, you got 15, 20 kids in a grade. They can go to a right. church for a day, exactly. and then, you know, you got someone to watch all the kids at a church. That can't happen in Independence. I want to move on quickly. We've got a lot of other things going on. After more than a year of meetings, the Kansas City School Board was scheduled to vote this week if we didn't have enough decisions on a huge school closing plan, 10 schools on the chopping block, including Central and Northeast High Schools. But after community pushback, the district has now punted the decision to next year. No, we're not attached to a building. We're attached to our community. What is our plan for our wonder about like where my son's gonna go to school next year. There's no reason that there should be a vote to like close schools at this point until they've had opportunities to engage families in those transition plans. All right, you can certainly feel the frustration of parents in that clip, but what changed? Are they now gonna go back and now change the schools that they plan to close? Well, it really should be a decision for the new superintendent. They kind of dumped this in Dr. Collier's lap as coming in as the uh, she's interim. The interim yes. She's the interim trying to get this straightened out, so she's taking all the heat. 
when actually that's a decision that the new superintendent should make because they might come up with another plan or force the people that are doing it to come up with another plan. I think it was kind of unfair for them to do that. It's interesting, uh, Mayor Lucas just tweeted out, uh, Kevin, that uh, south of the river in Kansas City, they're losing 1,000 residents a year south of the river. How much of the, is that relating to the Kansas City, Missouri School District and the problems that they face? It's certainly, it's been a big part of it for a long, long time. I mean, you know, ever s since the 90s, there's been a mass exodus of a lot of families out of the city. I think it would certainly help keep people in the city if they knew they had a good school district that they didn't have to worry about charter schools or parochial schools or private schools. I mean, to live in the city and raise children, you got to work a lot harder than somebody who lives right across the line in Johnson County, and that's, that's, that's tough. But uh, I do also think that, you know, just the basic city services, and the forget, I mean, the schools are certainly a big part of it, but, you know, whether it's right or wrong, the perception that crime is out of control in the city, particularly south of the river, and we're not just talking about homicides, we're talking about burglaries, we're talking about car break-ins, uh, it, you know, there is definitely significant quality of life issues the city needs to get a handle on, including education and security. Uh, and, and that's, I think, one of the reasons we're still seeing people leaving uh, south of the river, although I might throw in quickly, Downtown is a big exception to that rule, that the downtown population has grown significantly, and so there is hope. But those people don't have kids. No, Most yeah, of them don't. Yeah. You're right. Most people right. move to suburbs after they do right. have yeah, children. Right. Partly, right. I mean, right. it is anticipated that it might possibly be a different listing of schools. In 2002, by the way, there were 33,000 students in the Kansas City, Missouri School District. Today, that number has dropped to 14,000 kids. Very quickly here, the city manager's future is on the line this week, too. Can Brian Platt survive allegations that he's told staff to, quote, lie to the media? The claim is made in a new lawsuit from former city communications director Chris Hernandez, who says he was removed from his job after reporting the incident. But, Pete, is there any evidence at all that there's a move afoot now to send Brian Platt packing before Christmas? Before which Christmas, Nick? No, he's not, no. Okay, you, no. Don't, you don't see it? No, no, I don't. I, I mean, listen, the, the debate is whether or not uh, they lied about, what, nearly 300 miles of street lane being paved or over 300 miles. And, uh, you know, this, if I had a dime for every time a politician thought about or said they were going to lie to the media, I'd be sitting on an island somewhere. I mean, this is, this is not a story. This was blown up because the whistleblower used to work in media in this town, and people are sympathetic to him. That's it. And the, and the manager's a new guy. And I have to say, you know, um, that job is a patronage job, to use an old-fashioned term. I mean, he was hired by Troy Schulte, the former city manager. The new guy comes in. They work together for a while. He decides this is just not a good fit. I, I you know, I just, I'm, I, I think Chris could have continued to be a communications professional at City Hall. But him filing a lawsuit like this, I think, is going to cook his career. Okay. Now, somewhere in this is public trust. I have to believe what the city manager says, whether it's potholes or whether it's whatever. I have to believe that. And so is Brian Platt in trouble? I believe that we'll see after the election. I don't think that the mayor wants okay. to try to cause that. For that a primary vote election that. is until April, right. so we've got a, right. quite a bit of time to wait. Right. Now, when we put a program like this together every week, you can't get to every big local story making the headlines. What was the big local story we missed? A big shock at our daily newspaper, the new head of the Kansas City Star editorial board has died at the age of 51. Michael Lindenberger had only joined the Star in August. 
Previously, he was at the Houston Chronicle. A star report simply stated he had died at home following a brief illness. An autopsy reveals that soccer journalist Grant Wall died from an aneurysm. The 49-year-old sports writer collapsed over the weekend in Qatar while covering the World Cup. Wall had a lot of local connections. He was born in Mission, Kansas, and attended Shawnee Mission East High School. Cleanup continues in Kansas after what is now being described as the nation's biggest oil pipeline spill in nine years. It happened 20 miles south of the Nebraska border, about an hour north of Manhattan. Tough times for area charities. The Salvation Army reports donations down 30% on last year. And they're not the only ones. Rockhurst University feeling the pinch, according to the Beacon News site. Faculty has been told to take on additional classes or accept pay cuts as the Jesuit school wrestles with a $10 million budget shortfall. New Kansas Attorney General Chris Kobach grabbing the headlines as he selects his former political rival to head the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Tony Mativi still has to be confirmed by the Kansas Senate. And an Olive Garden store in Overland Park is now making national news after the restaurant's manager threatened workers for taking time off. The manager at the store at 95th and Metcalf has now been fired after sending a message to staff stating, we're no longer tolerating any excuses for not being here. If your dog has died, you need to bring it in and prove it to us. While the manager may be gone, the store remains open and still offering unlimited breadsticks. Alrighty, Mary Sanchez, did you pick one of those stories or something completely different? I know you like the unlimited breadsticks and Caesar salads at Olive Garden. I love a good Caesar salad, but a really good one that's <laughs> okay. actually made with anchovies. So not at Olive Garden. Ouch. No comment. We love Olive Garden. No what, 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 what did you put I down? I would actually like to kind of wrap in um, the two deaths in that as much as we talk about all the problems in our community and they're so real, People are still here trying to make a difference, whether it's a journalist who was new to our city, who, frankly, I did not have the chance to meet, but I felt like was doing some good things. Um, you know, to Grant Wall, which he's from here and contributed so much to soccer. It's just, it's tragic to lose people in their prime, really. Yes. 49 and 51. Yeah. Eric. Uh, I picked something different. The Kansas City called building renovations. Uh, forgive my shameless plug, but also inflation is on the increase in Kansas City. That yes. might we get your credit donations. cards out. We'll be putting That's a toll-free right. number on the bottom of your screen <laughs> to support the work of the coal and the restoration of that building. Pete, what well, did you put down? He's going shameless plug. I'm going shameless <laughs> oh, plug. Wow. We wow. raised a cumulus <laughs> Kansas City radio cluster raised $101,000 for Children's Miracle Network, helping out uh, kids dealing with with life-threatening illnesses at KU Med last Thursday. So thank you to our listeners uh, at. KU CMO Talk Radio, who were the biggest, biggest percentage of that. And Kevin. I'm going to go with something different. Uh, I had a story the other day about a group of pretty influential civic leaders that are trying to put together what they call the Plaza Council. And the idea is to get a bunch of folks together with some, with some wherewithal to try to look out for the overall future of the Plaza area, which many people in town think is starting to show some real signs of wear and concern about the management of the place. And on that, we will say our week has been reviewed thanks to the calls Eric Wesson and Kevin Collison from City Scene KC. Six to ten weekdays on KCMO Talk Radio, Pete Mundo. And from our digital newsroom, Flatland KC, Mary Sanchez. And I'm Nick Haynes from all of us here at Kansas City PBS. Be well, keep calm, carry on, and happy Hanukkah.